Welcome to With Purpose, the podcast for people working, investing and giving with real purpose. My name's David Knowles and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest in this episode is Karen Marlab. Karen's one of Australia's most prominent community advocates. For a long time, Karen ran the Marlab Group as CEO. She is the co-founder of PS Media and probably best known amongst a variety of other community-based roles for being CEO of Pro Bono Australia, which Karen founded in 1999. This is quite a powerful conversation with Karen. It, it happens right in the aftermath of the Hamas attack on Israel and in the wake of the Voice to Parliament referendum result. It finds Karen in reflective mood. And also we, in this episode, reflect on Karen's career. Then we look ahead and look at what Karen might do in the future. And no doubt that will be something very interesting and impactful. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, David. How are you? I'm great. Thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you with me, actually, because I've followed your work for a long time. And the news service at Pro Bono Australia was actually the font of kind of all my knowledge um, when I started out in the world of philanthropy and nonprofit work. So uh, great, to, great to have you here. Um, before we start talking about you and your career and all, all the purposeful work that you've done, uh, I'm sitting here on um, Gadigal land, urination land, and we're doing this over Zoom. So you're, you're in a different location on different land, but we're also recording this a couple of days really after the referendum. So I think we've probably got a bit to talk about before we get to you. There's a lot going on in the world and just wanted to give you the chance to, to talk about that. Yeah, I'm on Wurundjeri land. Um... And I pay my respects to the people of this Kulin nation. Um, It feels like a dark time. I feel as though I'm carrying a lot of grief um, and I send my um, condolences really to um, Indigenous people across Australia. I'm also carrying and feeling a lot of grief, as is anyone who is Jewish, Palestinian or Muslim with the horrendous um, barbarity of Hamas um, in Israel, but also what's falling out for anyone who um, feels that they are part of any of those groups um, in how to deal with what's happening in the Middle East. Um, There's a wait over the last week or two that is just awful and that's on top of dark times when we're looking at planetary boundaries so I've got a somberness of great somberness and vulnerability um, at the moment um, that I come into this conversation and um, I was actually I'll I'll share with you a Bertolt Brecht uh, little poem in the dark times will there also be singing yes there will be singing about the dark times. So I think that sense of how we deal with people and as communities with what is happening internally um, and externally, we need to join up with our communities to sing and meet and share. So it feels like a heavy time. Yeah. Well, it, it is a heavy time, isn't it? Um, and for some communities, particularly so you just you just mentioned those communities. If um, 
if we just start with the uh, the referendum, how do you how do you feel about what we do now, Karen? And I don't so much mean future for the process. What's the appropriate kind of re- response, and how do we kind of deal with Indigenous communities, First Nations people here over the you know immediate kind of aftermath of the referendum result? I think at this point in time to give them their silence and let them mourn and regroup. Yeah, and that, uh, it's worth noting again that we recorded this during a period of, of formal silence for people in, yeah. in, in sections of that community at least, um, which is yeah. something they've chosen to do. So I guess it's respect for that um, yeah. reflected, isn't it? And then yeah. events in, in and around Israel, I just don't feel in any way qualified to ask meaningful questions other than to invite you to, if you can, if it's possible, um, help me and anybody else that will listen to this recording, invite us to, how do we think about this from, from your perspective, from your community's perspective? I don't think, you know, what happened with Hamas as a terrorist organisation coming into Israel was just horrendous and um, a complete shock that needs to be fully acknowledged um, for what it was. This has been a very messy issue for very many years, the Palestinian-Israeli issue, and there has been um, divided and destructive leadership on both sides. Um, that's, That's in the Middle East. What has happened in Australia is the vulnerability of Jewish people across the world that we have now police guards at our schools, um, at the Jewish schools. Kids have been told to hide the emblems on their school uniforms. Um, There have been demonstrations that refer back to Holocaust events. So there's an existential, oh, my God, they're coming for us again, Um, post-Holocaust. All of us in Melbourne had one of the largest Holocaust um, survivor communities of any city in the world. So many of us, including my own family, fled the Nazis or were unlucky enough, were, were, were killed by the Nazis. So this isn't with living memory. You know, my grandmother fled Vienna in 1938 with my mother. And um, it was, they were lucky. They got out just before the war. But boy, does that resonate. And the establishment of the State of Israel was in response to that Holocaust. So it is a very vulnerable place to be at this point in time in a way that I have not ever had before living in Australia as a Jewish person. Uh, I think we should move to where we were going to start originally before events overtook us. And that was to talk about you and your career and your beliefs. So um, I'm really interested to kind of kick off with why you think your career or working life has involved this uh, this really strong sense of purpose and, and over a very long period of time. Do you have any idea where that, where that um, actually comes from? Um, I think it probably comes from a culture um, a family uh, lineage that has always been involved with change and with understanding that we as individuals can make change. And I think that lineage 
goes way back, actually, on both sides of my family. Um, in my father, my father, my father's father came from Baghdad, and the women in that family established the first one of the first um, schools for women in Baghdad. And um, my father's mother was one of, you know, walked with the suffragettes. And on my mother's side um, in Vienna, uh, my great-grandfather was a great philanthropist and social activist in Vienna as well as being a businessman. And then um, my mother, you might know, was one of Australia's great feminists in the 70s and we grew up in that household and was, um, you know, a board member, the first female board member on the board of Westpac. And um, so I've come from a very rich history uh, lineage and I found in recent years the need to put myself in a lineage rather than just talking about me because I came from um, a history so I am um, part of the ocean. I'm just one wave in the ocean um, of my family lineage. I'm a fairly intuitive person whose um, uh, journey has been very um, about consciousness a lot. Um, it was about, and some people might not understanding this um, phrase for pro bono Australia, it was about holding the space for emergence. So I felt as though there were enormous changes um, that were about to happen in the sector and Pro Bono Australia was holding the space for that to emerge. You've told so many stories and I, I think you've amplified and supported so many organisations and narratives and uh, I think you've used the term movements previously, you know, social enterprise, philanthropy, impact investment, not-for-profit charity work. Um, you've done so so much of that um how do you feel about that as a kind of legacy almost now because you've parked that after 22 years um how do you feel about it before we look at you know things that you're doing now yeah i i'm i've i feel um proud of that i can kind of tuck that under my belt and go okay i did have i described it as an egg actually the vision was to if you have an egg and the outside is the global economy and the yolk is the social economy then we had and i had a very um distinct strategy in my mind to grow the social economy as a bigger part of the global economy that that was engaged civil society was the values that i wanted to uphold and so the six parts of that that we supported consciously at Pro Bono Australia to write stories about and um, bring insights into were those ones that you've mentioned, philanthropy, volunteering, um, not-for-profit charity, social enterprise, impact investing and corporate social responsibility. It was a very conscious decision to give them voice. And I'm proud of those 18,000 articles over such a period of time because I think we did. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and you're in the business of um, this, um, or you're in an environment of emergence, uh, as you say. Um, I did hear you also say uh, on another podcast um, that it made that kind of made it difficult for you sometimes to explain what you were doing. And that really resonated with me when I heard that because I, I remember I went back to the UK a couple of years ago and with an old family friend sat around having dinner and one of their adult daughters asked me what I did 
after about five and a half minutes, I'd finally finished explaining it. And I was throwing in things like philanthropy and, you know, impact investment, volunteering, but in a commercial setting. And anyway, it was hopeless. And at the end of five minutes, I stopped and she said, I'm a teacher. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I wish I could just, I wish I could just sum it up like that. You know, it was probably my own fault. But I think you were kind of expressing a similar thing, right? How do you kind of explain what you do to people that don't know that? terminology don't understand that ecosystem and um and probably haven't really been exposed yeah and when when we started in 2000 it took me probably six months to come up with the term we are a social purpose business venture and that's now known as a social enterprise and no one in Australia could understand what I was talking about but when I went to and this is I think a lesson about finding your tribe because I went to America into the Social Venture Network, which was a whole group like Eileen Fisher and Ben and Jerry's who were ahead of Australia and Anita Roddick at Body Shop who were ahead of Australia in this, but there was no one in Australia doing it. So often I thought, am I crazy? Because I'm trying to describe something that people didn't get. You were also at the, you were a pioneer in a digital sense. So the way that you started to do that, say through, through Program Pro Australia, that was, you know, 22 years ago, and you look back, that was actually quite uh, yeah. a bold move. What Do you remember what you were thinking at the time? Well, um, you know what I was thinking even then was um, I've got young kids. The digital platforms offer me an opportunity to um, be present without being present. Um, that it was it could be used to be um I didn't need to be I didn't need to speak anywhere I didn't need to necessarily go anywhere that I could build a platform that would give a voice without necessarily me having to be the voice and there was things that came up personally around that so it was an early understanding of what a digital platform could offer someone like me with um, young children, which we now take for granted. But in those days, you know, hardly anyone had emails. So it really was quite a radical time. Yeah, because if you'd said to me what you just said and it was 12 years ago, I'd say, oh, yeah, I get that. Lots of people would have been thinking similar things, but it was so much earlier. So now where you're at now, we haven't talked about too much about what you're, what's important to you at this stage of your working life. We've been talking a lot about the past, but where are you at now? Where's your headspace in terms of well, work? Yeah, I'm a bit like mush at the moment. I'm the caterpillar that's gone into the chrysalis um, and might come out as a butterfly, I hope. <laughs> I you never, say, you never know where that's going to end up. And I have to, I have to share something with you because I feel it so much that I've had my first tattoo done on my ankle. <laughs> and I got it done in Zurich about four weeks ago and it's of a chrysalis. So I feel as though I've kind of gone into this um, emergence space again where um, over the past five years I really activated a lot in the media sector um, and because um, I activated to um, form the Public Interest Journalism Initiative with a group of other people and then I launched PS Media um, with my co-founders, which is a really innovative local media model, um, which I think local media I, I, we can talk about later, but is very yeah. um, crucial. But at that 
at that stage, I was, um, I came up with a term I that I, five years ago, that I'd reached my PAP, which is a very unattractive way to say my peak activation potential. So that's the like course that I've been on. That, yeah, that, right. Could be good or bad, tells more. Well, that, you know, five years ago, really, um, in my 50s, I I know enough, I'm resourced enough, I'm networked enough that to initiate a new idea or new activities, I could do that really quickly because the ripple effects that I could make would meant that I knew the people to talk to. I didn't care so much what they thought of me anymore and that I had the resources actually to make things happen, which is actually what happened with Pidgey and PS Media and a couple of other things that I've been involved with. So that was my peak activation potential stage. And now, um, now I think the world has gone into a different phase and so have I, as I said, with the chrysalis. I think um, to be more serious, I think now um, it's the it's a bigger question. The question is how do I affect and how do I engage with what is coming? One area uh, where we've seen a lot of change that you're interested in is the media and the media landscape. <clears throat> so why don't we just talk about that for a bit? You've mentioned PS Media, you've mentioned the uh, 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 Public Interest Journalist, Public Interest Journalist um, Initiative. Why don't you talk about what you're seeing there and, and how you think that's going to play out? So um, many people listening to the podcast will know that media has changed enormously over the last decade plus. I don't know if everyone listening would understand that what has actually happened. If you remember newspapers, they used to have a huge classified section in the back, you know, travel and careers and cars and all of that has all of the revenue they used to call the rivers of gold in the back of newspapers has gone to Facebook and Google and the other platforms. So those classified sections in the back of the papers used to pay for the journalists who wrote in the front of the papers. So the decline in what media organisations can afford or what media organisations can afford is contingent upon their revenue streams and they've become less and less and less. So there's been less and less and more and more precipitous um, business model around media. So there's been a lot of government action. There's been a lot of um, discussion, particularly in Australia as a leader in the space with the mandatory bargaining code um, about how the platforms pay for journal help pay for sustainable journalism. So um, I recognise that with pro bono very much, it when we were struggling um, with the business model for paying the journalists in 2016, I really, something clicked about the whole model of everyone, that we were just one small example of media organisations with disappearing. And or media organisations that disappear mean disappearance of certain voices. So it's what's happened with Pro Bono Australia, the voice of the community sector has somewhat disappeared. So the media delivers the stories we tell ourselves. 
Um, it delivers our um, how we understand things. Um, it delivers nuance. It delivers issues. Um, and my because I guess community has been at my heart. The type of media organisation disappearance that I've been most concerned about is local media, because. Um, for example, in my area, the first I heard of the local council elections, because we have no local news anymore, is the voting slip that came in my letterbox with the self-described position statements of the people being elected. That's the only thing I heard. I got a knock at my front door to find that there were 250 apartments being built at the bottom of my street. Um, and that was the only way I found out because someone had activated in the neighbourhood to knock on my door, no local paper. And more for a community um, cohesion point of view, if you don't know your next door neighbours, you become more and more isolated. If you don't know what's opening up, how can you, in restaurants, how can you go visit? And so for me, local media um, is absolutely vital, not to mention not having journalists um, at council meetings to account with what they're doing with the money that we pay in our rates So and their priorities. So I see local news as being absolutely vital to um, social capital in communities. How, how kind of positive do you feel about people switching on to this and realising how important it is and how how something that could be um, an intellectual understanding actually becomes a, uh, you know, a real life, this affects me and my community and my day-to-day -day life issue. How, how does that kind of, how do you bring um, those two things together so you get support for it, I suppose, is the question. Yeah. Um, I think people are busy. They've got huge concerns on in their own lives. So it really has to become very obvious and relevant to them to make a difference difference so um it's the the question they need someone knocking on their front door to say did you realize there's a big block of apartments being built at the bottom of your street you know it has to be directly in your face relevant to your area or your kids or your you know the place that you live which is um so important as we found out during covid um, so the question is, how do you bring that relevance into people's minds? And having done that in Port Phillip, it is really a tough thing to do. It has to happen slowly over a long period of time and with writing and activating issues that are or activities that are really, really relevant and not necessarily deep and sincere. So um, there's a wonderful local media company in Denmark that writes really, really well called Zetland, great set of journalists, but they also run concerts and local events, you know, really out there community gatherings. So does media need to look the way that it used to in the past to get communities engaged? No, there's got to be something, there's things have got to be done differently so that people want to engage. It's not just an intellectual exercise. Do you see any bright spots in terms of uh, the community work that you're engaged in, not just the media, but it could be philanthropy, um, you know, um, could be uh, the non-profit sector? What, what are you seeing that excites you? 
Um, what I'm seeing that excites me is a sense that communities know what they're doing for each other and for themselves. So that kind of bringing up of the um, the lived experience, um, the trauma-informed, the communities know what's best to get themselves out of um, something or other or to celebrate. So a slight shift in how that is um, valued, really. Um, I'm starting to see um, people becoming more conscious in the way that they are in the world and the way that they relate to other people in the world. So I think that that's an interesting and individual and sometimes spiritual journey that people are heading off on, that they're realising that um, they're part of a bigger ecosystem as human beings and connected to nature and the planet that we're all interrelated. They are really, I think they're phenomenally um, important and optimistic movements. If you if, if you look at where we've come, almost like an arc, there, were, there was a lot of stuff done, grassroots, community, lived experience type um, levels. And then we've gone through this kind of period of industrialization, globalization, and it's almost like there's been a disconnect. And maybe it's about what you're explaining as well is about coming back to that point of being involved um, and if you want something done get directly involved and feeling like you're part of something and part part of the solution do you, do you feel that at all this idea that um, maybe we lost our way for a, for a period of time and there's a big disconnect and that um, actually to solve you know community environmental social issues we need people to be in at the grassroots 100% and that each individual can make a difference. So that empowerment of I can just do something little, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole big thing. I can just do something little and it will make a difference. You know, it's the solar rooftops, um, you know, in Australia, which is so phenomenal as a movement. There's a quote I can't, I can't, um, deliver to you and I think it was a female who said I can't remember who it is so I'm doing a poor job of teeing this up was the idea of never ne you know never doubt that, that you can change the world one person because that's the, that's the way the world's always been changed Do you that? it's Margaret Mead who was right. an anthropologist you know we need new leadership for new times so um that has to happen well that's Easier said than done, isn't it? I know. Um, going I'm going back into my chrysalis, David. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll knock on. I'll knock on the uh, outside of it and safe to come back out. <laughs> well, I think we should finish, Karen, with something um, a little bit uplifting. It. So I, again, just to congratulate you on all your work. I think it's been absolutely fantastic. It's been valuable. It was valuable to me personally. I felt it aspects of your work, but of course. Your career has been multifaceted and, you know, you've, you've been involved and in, you've started, you've supported, you've, you know, you've acted for so many different things that you must be proud. And it's, a, as you say, part of a continuum. It's something that that you can trace back and um, look at in a family context. So there's a lot to celebrate there. But clearly with this chrysalis thing, which is kind of where I think we should kind of come back to and finish, 
this is only the start of the next chapter. We just pause and we put the book down. And then in terms of the Karen Marlab story, um, we will pick up that book over the next chapter and out you comes the butterfly. Any thoughts on what that might look like? Not at this stage, David. I do know that I want to do it with other chrysalises. Um, you know, I don't want to be a lone butterfly. And I think that that's probably one of the things that I've taken out of this process is um, doing it with other. So um, for me at this point in time, it's linking up with people who are thinking the same way. Um, so, yeah. And so once again, finding my tribe. And mm. um, that's that's going to be a process in itself because it's... It's a journey that's both alone but collective. Mm. Well, it was probably a silly question in hindsight to ask you if you know what you're going to do next because that's kind of the point of being the chrysalis, isn't it? You know, kind of. It's like you almost have to stop yourself from thinking what next because otherwise you're just doing what you do, which is just going to the next thing all the time. So it's really probably quite important to pause and have that separation and then come out. And all we can say at this stage, Karen, is to wish you the best of luck, you know, in that stage uh, that you're in right now um that you then come out and um you know you uh you find you know exactly what you want to do and then um you fly off and do it so i really look forward to finding out what that's going to be and seeing that but i'm sure it's going to be really valuable and uh worthwhile well i don't i don't know about that but you've got me this podcast has come right in the middle of it all so you've got me at a very mushy stage and um, I can make no promises about anything either to myself or to anyone else. I, I don't think so, you have to. You don't yeah. have to do at the moment. Um, and if all you do for the time being is reflect and um, and uh, just kind of you know think about what you want to do next, then that's that's as it should be. Um, but I think there are lots of people really interested in what you do do next in your own time and in your own way. So best of luck with this um, stage and. Um, Let's hope when you re-emerge, you know, it's um, it's something that you feel really good about and that we'll all uh, enjoy following and being part of it. Well, thanks for the opportunity to put it into words, David. No problem. Great. Thanks so much, Karen. All the best. All right. Cheers. Bye. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codedcapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and nonprofit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.